Welcome to Canada Crush. I'm your host, Dave Morris. Each episode, we'll talk to great Canadians in business, sports, the arts, and elsewhere to discover and uncover their routines, their habits, and the tool set they use to prepare themselves for success at the highest level. Come on this journey with me as we find out what makes Canada and its people so remarkable. We can be a leader in the world on, on so many levels, from the environment to our multicultural uh, aspirations. It's our 150th birthday, right, to try and figure out who we're going to be in the next 50 years. Supporting people, surrounding yourself with the best there is really means gender equality and and diversity because you can't have great ideas and great inspiration surrounding yourself with only people who looked and sound just like you because when I was at Sony and, and sort of the, the hell was going to hand, hand basket there um, you know people would say well Denise you can't joke around with your staff you're the, you're the president and I'm like you know what actually when we're in times of great turmoil it's good to be able to empathize with your staff and to, to you know, find uh, your team and your, your community through humor. Humor's always worked for me. That's the amazing voice of our incredible guest, Denise Donlin. If you follow Denise's career, you may remember her from the early days of Much Music, an on-air personality who interviewed some of Canada's and the world's greatest musicians. You may remember Denise as the president of Sony Canada Music, or head of CBC Radio's English Language Services. But long after this interview ended, I'm going to remember Denise Donlan, the incredibly open, honest, and humble great Canadian that she is. Denise has forged personal relationships with Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell. She's commanded the boardroom of Canadian business, and she's also married to Canadian singer-songwriter Murray McLaughlin. Her sense of pride in being Canadian is downright infectious. She's an advocate and leader around cultural diversity and gender equality, and she backs it up with firm action. I can hardly wait to see what business challenge Denise tackles next, because it's bound to be surrounded with success. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did in guiding it. And when it's finished, I hope you go and buy her recent memoir, because it is superb. And if you do enjoy this interview and you'd love to hear from other great Canadians, please head over to CanadaCrush.com to listen to all of our podcasts. Please be sure to sign up to our email list, and we will keep you current as new podcast interviews go live to air. As well, please like and follow us on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Canada Crush Podcast, and we'll keep you informed of all sorts of great Canadiana throughout Canada's 150th year celebration. But for now, here's Denise Donlan. So, Denise Donlan, welcome to Canada Crush. It's a delight to be here. Love the name, by the way, Canada Crush. We're going to crush Canada I in know, a good way. We are, and yeah. we're going to crush it today. <laughs> it's funny, you know, by the time I usually sit down with somebody to interview them, I feel like I know them. And for mm. a big reason, because I've, I've tried to do, obviously, as much research work, as possible. Yeah. And in this case, I really feel like I know you because your book, I've I, I got to tell you, I loved it. Thank I loved it, you. I loved it, I loved it. What I thought was so spectacular, and we'll touch on a lot of this, is the fact that you were you were so open, but you were so positive, mm. and wherever there were aspects in your life that were not positive, negative, you didn't linger long, mm. and you moved on. Yeah. And, and for me as a reader, it was absolutely 
Fantastic. So I'm thinking that any Canadian with a pulse needs to go out and buy your book. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yeah. please. Yeah. So the book is called Fearless as Possible. Under the Circumstances. Brackets Under the Circumstances. Mm-hmm. So maybe the first question is, how did the name come about? Oh, well, that was an old, it was an old Zosky thing. So Peter Zosky uh, used to run, I mean, we all know him as Captain Canada, and he was a dear friend, dearly departed. Um, but in 19, I think it was 72, he was the host of a show called This Country in the Morning. And they decided to do the first ever contest on radio, as I understand. And he was looking for the answer. He wanted a, a Canadian simile to the American expression, as American as apple pie. Uh. And so, as CBC listeners do, you know, people were f- typing furiously and phoning and leaving messages, and it was a large debate ensued. And people were saying, you know, as Canadian as maple syrup, as Canadian as hockey, as Canadian as Diefenbaker. He, and so the winner was this young girl from Galt or Cambridge, um, if I'm remembering right, and she said, as Canadian as possible, under the circumstances. And Peter loved that so much. He he wrote it uh, out, he framed it, he put it on his wall, and it was on his wall for years and years and years while he did radio. So it's classic. I mean, it's, it's so Canadian, classic. but it's almost apologetic. Isn't it, it is. It is a little humble, kind of little cynical. But and, uh, so and when so, the book came around, so did you have the fearless part, or how did you how did you come up with well, it? Well, I, I kind of goofed around on that. I mean, in terms of the fearless part, because when you write a book, you want to be as honest and as authentic as you possibly can, and that takes some courage. And I realized that there was, you know, a number of different narratives that started to run through the book. Um, And Fearless became, you know, kind of one of them because people, I mean, I'm six foot tall. People, I I can fake confidence pretty easily and Mm -hmm. stride into a room, uh, but I'm seldom feeling very confident. So I have to find my my bravery, my courage, you know, it's a, it's a running theme. So, yeah. And Peter wouldn't mind because, you know, we were friends and he wouldn't mind that I appropriated his, his, uh, his contest. When you started the book, did you have a, an idea of a direction it was going to go? And what was that? No, it completely, the book was willful. Um, I w- so I was asked to write a book by my publisher, and uh, I thought they just wanted celebrity stories. You know, I could drop enough names to bruise anyone's toes. And so I thought, yeah, maybe I should capture some of those stories because they're fun or, or interesting, or maybe my son does want to know what happened on the White Snake slided in tour of Europe 1984 one day. Uh, but as I started writing, I thought, oh, who cares about my celebrity stories? I'm not Oprah or Ansong Suchi or Malala or anybody. Um, so the book, uh, yeah, it started to to chart its own course. So the stories had to be about something. They had to either make me laugh or teach me something or teach the reader something. And so these themes um, that became, I think, part of the subtle narrative, which is, you know, feminism, being a, a lady leader in traditionally male-dominated industries, humanitarianism, um, and yeah, the whole fearlessness thing, the imposter syndrome, that kind of stuff, all started to bubble up. So, Well, that's what I also found was interesting. You've already touched on it once or twice, the imposter, sy- imposter syndrome, but also walking into a room and having to fake it. Was it hard for you to have the spotlight? It's going to be on you again by writing a book. Or did you get so lost in the book? Explain how you got over that. Well, I think I just, once you made a commitment, I, you know, you follow through. So I agreed to write a book and then... 
you know, it took two years, and I had to write every single day, whether I wanted to or not. Um, I overwrote. I got to, like, 1,200 pages, and my poor editor had to send me helpful notes like, I strongly suggest you delete this entire chapter. It's very helpful. <laughs> or, I strongly suggest you rewrite this entire chapter. One of the things that, that, that I loved is, so music was such an important part of mm-hmm. your life, and I'd love to actually jump into some of that. When you were a young girl... Growing up in Scarborough, Ontario. Scarberia. Scarberia. <laughs> Did you ever think that music would play such an important part in your life? No, not. I, ne- I always enjoyed music. And, you know, I did my best to, to learn piano lessons, you know, the Royal Conservatory and did all of that. And and But I really more enjoyed playing guitar where I could actually play by ear. So I would, like many young girls, like many young boys, really, you know, find solace and, and some serenity, really, in just sitting in your room and trying to plunk out a song, mm-hmm. um, you know, pouring your troubles to the sound hole, as they as musicians say. So it was always a, a very fulfilling um, part, but I never thought I could actually make a living at it. So just, you know, different steps along the way. I thought I was going to be an environmental activist and, and be an environmental scientist. Is that what you were studying when you were down in Waterloo? Yeah, yeah environmental studies and, and psychology, you know, both of which prepared me for a life in the music business. Yeah. Well, I was trying to put the time frame <laughs> together because you were at Waterloo 75 to 78. Mm-hmm. But then you were doing some campus promotion. I know yeah. you brought in Scotty from Star Trek. Yeah. And a number of other things. So were you doing that in your last year or did you literally segue from 78 and then jump into the the on-campus Yeah, I didn't job? finish university. I'm, I was still about, I don't know, six credits short. Okay. But I started getting involved in, um, you know, we were in environmental studies. So we were all, you know, quite hirsute, tree-hugging placard-waving activists, and so I started to get involved in in bringing different speakers to the campus for, you know, Body Week and Energy Week and that kind of thing, and then they literally, uh, you know, there was a a sign-up to say they wanted a new college buyer, and uh, I'd done my worst, you know, musical impersonations of Joni Mitchell in the grad club (laughs) to terrible reviews um so i love music and there was a job and i thought well i could do this maybe and they hired me on and off we went but being a a concert promoter and it took you from there obviously the concert promoting that you did out in in uh west out in vancouver and as you've already alluded to that you were working with the the band white snake which this is awful (laughs) i had to go google it because i literally did not know i I hope you enjoyed those songs they are good i see that they've done a reunion tour so they're back (laughs) on are they looking for a promoter david coverdale right oh no it was i mean that that chapter is called the feminist compromise the white snakes slided in tour of europe yeah <laughs> well i think what was great about it is it positioned you for from the public eye it was the opportunity that now segue you into 1985 mm-hmm. when you got on air as the host and the producer of the new music so mm-hmm. that was the first time i would have seen you and i think the public would have seen mm-hmm. you as well describe a little bit what was going on in the canadian music scene when you landed in 1985 at, oh well at much. i started at much uh, on on rock flash so i was the news anchor and had to come up with news about the music business every hour on the hour for eight hours a day and never repeat anything because god help us we thought the audience was watching eight hours a day and by and large they were actually because much music when it burst upon the scene and it was up for two years before i arrived um 
it was it was Camelot for musicians. It was the first time that artists, you know, had one sort of channel, one network, one means of communication uh, across the country. So you could be a star in Vancouver or Red Deer or wherever or Halifax, but now if you got a video on Much Music, you were suddenly broadcast to the entire country. Um, and if you were lucky enough to get into heavy rotation, you know, the, it made your career or at least gave you a huge leg up. So, you know, the artists would come in every day. We were friends with them. We we didn't see ourselves really as exploiting the talent. We thought we were partnering with the talent mm-hmm. um, and developed wonderful friendships with, you know, with artists from, you know, Gord Downey to Jim Cuddy to Lorraine, people that I still know today. So it, w- it was really Camelot for them as well as for the audience, you know, who'd suddenly be, you know, sitting in their room in Medicine Hat going, what is Boy George on about? Yeah. <laughs> what is so that? interesting one, and maybe you can help fill the little bit more gap on this as well. Mm. Jim Cuddy, Blue mm. Rodeo, of mm-hmm. course. So Jim and I were at the same high school together. Oh, and really? I know when yeah. those guys got out on the road, they they went down to the States, they toured across Canada as much as they could have, mm-hmm. pieced together what the music was able to do for them now, as you say, video-wise, putting them on the air. So was that an example of a, well, of yeah. a career? Yeah, so Blue, Blue Rodeo, their label was about to drop them, actually. Um, be, and it was Warner at the time. And Dave Tollington, who was the promo rep, I mean, they'd put that record out. Try was the was the song, yeah, the single. And, uh, and then Jim still hits that note today. Um, and so he went and talked to, Dave, uh, to John Martin, who was the program director at the station, and said, really, really, you know, we I would love for you to take another look at this video and so john did and loved it and you know put it on the air and broke the band Mm -hmm. literally broke the band without one video being played because they weren't getting any action at radio at the time and uh and things weren't looking good and here we are 30 years plus later and they're still a very very popular canadian band still what were the canadian content regulations at the time were they the same or similar they're they're the same to radio i mean the canadian content regulations for video were quite a bit different. They were, in fact, a little bit more onerous because you had to have the CanCon piece from the audio point of view and you had to have either a video a director or producer on the visual side as well. So we were at 30% with Much Music, which was tough at the beginning um, because there weren't a lot of music videos. So Much Music, uh, Moses and John and Bernie Finkelstein, who managed at the time Bruce and Marie McLaughlin, he... Um, they developed Video Fact, which was a fact to help fund these music videos. So um, playing Canadian content, I mean, for me, when I became the programmer, it was never about it being a ceiling or, or it, for me, it was a floor because we so we loved promoting Canadian yeah. talent. Um, and, you know, there were radio programmers who professed at the commission that they love the CanCon regulations and were big supporters, but they didn't. You know, they they were played almost as little as possible, so they buried it in the middle of the night sometimes, and so they had to be, you know, re-regulated around that. But I thought, and I believe to this day, that it was very important to, you know, build a Canadian culture and a means of expression, not only for the artists themselves, but also for the business, for the studios, for the record companies, for the the directors, uh, for all of the people behind the scenes as well. Well, the other thing that you've touched on, which is so important, is you can bring the people in the studio because they're accessible. So now the audience is not only able to see the video, see the band live, which is also, we all sort of love a little bit of Mm -hmm. communication with them. 
and crawl through the window and touch them. <laughs> right, because <laughs> it was in the basement, wasn't it? Or was no, it? when it moved to 299 Queen West, it was it was right street front storefront. Okay. Moses b- built it that way so that the front windows opened up like big garage doors, and we invited the audience in, and we loved that. We the, the more walls we could kind of break down in between artists and their fans, uh, the happier we were. There was a part in your book where you talk about the, you know, the, I think it was 2015, where seven of the top uh, musical acts on the Billboard Music Top 10 were Canadian. Mm-hmm. So has that CanCon rules and regulations continue to pay dividends for Canadians? Is No, I think it has. I mean, and people argue about the CanCon regulations constantly, uh, you know, particularly as the as the global content barriers become, you know, less tangible with, uh, you know, access to anything you want, whenever you want online. Um, but I still think they're, they're very important because, you know, at the time at Much Music, we did a calculation or we'd read a, a number that said that eight... 85% of the content that we were seeing on screen-based media was foreign content. So I'm sure that number is closer to 99% mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point. And it's not, you know, the U.S., it was a problem in the U.S., especially when I went to Sony, because the Americans would say, well, that's not really a hit. They're just playing it because they have to. And they really saw that 30% CanCon as protectionist, right? They used to call us Kanakistan, and they were 30 spots that their their artists couldn't get. Um, so there was always a little bit of friction around it. Um, you know, Brian Adams famously, when uh, Everything I Do, I Do It For You wasn't CanCon because he co-wrote it with Mutt Lang. I mean, you know, and Stomp and Tom sending back his Juno Awards, and I mean, everyone always argues about it. But for me, it's I think it's important because we do live next to the biggest cultural producer in the planet and you know we speak the same language aside from the the french piece and uh, we have to support our own stories and it's not about it's not protectionist it's simply give it a leg up because the economies of scale are so against it in the mm-hmm. first place do you remember the first time you went on air and i'm trying to get a sense for somebody <laughs> who again self-described <gasps> not having any confidence Imposter syndrome. How did you burst through? Oh, I was awful. I and I still hate being on air. You know, I don't. I love doing the work. I could, you know, research an artist forever and ever, amen, and then do the interview and then go into the the editing bay and and not know whether it was light or dark when I came out because I love the craft of it. But actually standing there with the microphone in you my hand with the like light it. and say, "Look at me!" It's like, no, shoot me now. Not, and some people love it. I mean, they're moths to the flame with it. Um, but what I became appreciated of. I mean, I was, you know, celebrities were, were tiny people with large heads and shiny hair and perfect teeth. And I was six foot one. Somebody called me in, in a review, you're an angular giantess. That was nice. Um, and I was older than most of the people on the air. I had a lisp and I had a gap in my teeth and, and you know, I had to perm my hair I to do my best spectacular. <laughs> well, the gap closed after a while and thank you. But at the time, you know, I just thought I was the the most ugh, unlikely candidate in the planet. Um, but I love doing the work, and I'm going to keep coming back through. to this theme because, <laughs> honest to God, it's that what the what you have just described and what you have done in success in your career. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful study. So we're going to keep poking away a little <laughs> Should bit. Should I on lie this. down so you can no, take notes? No, it's spe- that's great, great work. <laughs> was there a defining moment though when you finally said because you had to have gotten comfortable at some point was there a defining moment that said okay i've got this i can do this 
No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still nervous. I mean, you know, I go to a conference and somebody's speaking on stage and they say, any questions? And, I, and I'll walk up to the microphone and my heart will still be trying yeah. to beat out of its chest. But... What happened for me was, you know, when I was at the New Music, it was a time of great artist activism, right? You know, Sting was in the rainforest, and R.E.M. was doing Greenpeace, and Geldof was doing Live 8 for the first time, and Peter Gabriel was on tour with Amnesty International, and Bono was yelling at Canadian prime ministers. So for me, the first time I went to the Mandela at 70 concert in London, and, you know, artists were saying, well, we're here to wish Mandela happy birthday. He was still in jail at the time. And I couldn't understand why nobody was actually speaking the truth, um, but it was because they were worried about the messaging. And so I went down to the anti-apartheid office with, with Basil, our lovely cameraman, and we actually really dug deep into the whole apartheid and how music was a, a, a you know a, for, a form of communication for against depression, etc. And that was the moment when I thought I can overcome my own insecurities about being on air because. I think what I'm doing is valuable for the democracy, for our social mm-hmm. justice, for for the artists themselves who, who were passionate about uh, issues. And so that gave me the courage where I, I lacked, you know, the, self, the self-esteem around so it. So purpose, content, the information yeah. that you're accumulating. So yeah. with that, was there, what was your favorite interview? Oh, here? there's a million. Um, uh, Joni Mitchell was one of my favorite interviews ever only because I mean she was one I would study for for days right because um, yeah and I I don't put the G genius word against a lot of artists but I would with Joan because she's on on so many levels from visual arts to writing to to performing and all of it so she was you know I was nervous of course but she was better than I imagined um, and there was a lot of, you know, horrible interviews, too. Yeah, and, was there one that sticks out? That's oh, well, the, the, Chris Isaac, you know, stormed out of an interview. It was, wasn't my fault, actually. It was really, <laughs> it was innocent. I asked him a question about Elvis, and because we were collecting questions about Elvis, and apparently in America, which I was unbeknownst to me, was his song, Wicked Game, where he's, you know, it's the black and white, and he's rolling around on the beach, gorgeous video. He, uh, he'd been compared to, you know, negatively to Elvis, a wannabe. And so he stormed off, and then he sent me an apology postcard the next day. Dear Denise, I'm sorry that sun was in my eyes and my underwear was too tight and the dog Ugh. ate my homework and blah, blah, blah. It's in the book. But, you know, sometimes you interview artists that you revere and it doesn't work. And I didn't revere Chris, actually, but sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to. And, you know, I talk a lot about the art of doing interviews in the book because... Because it's a construct, it's artifice, right? You sit across from somebody you've never met, and you hope that they will tell you things they've never told anyone before. And meanwhile, you're selling airtime on their back. And, you know, you don't know. They could have woken up and had a terrible fight with their partner that morning, or, you know, maybe they've got an itchy rash. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yep. And <laughs> so. you don't find out t- maybe till later when exactly. they send the postcard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you described the time that was Camelot, and it, it yeah. clearly had to have been. And it was all big growth big positivity. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about, you were starting to develop business skills mm-hmm. at that stage as well, because you were also vice president, general manager mm-hmm. uh, in the 90s. What sort of leadership and business skills did you start to pull away from that experience? Well, I started to rec- recognize the importance of 
you know, brand's a big word now. It was not a really a big word then, but it was a, it's like you, you have to protect your brand at all costs. And if your brand, and, and the, the brand I think we developed, was this level of trust between the audience and the channel. The audience thought it was their channel. And, you know, the reason I got the job as director of programming is because I was doing all these, you know, relevance. We were doing our specials on the environment and racism and gender and, um, you know, sexism in the music industry and and Moses said you know if I give you this channel this instrument to be played how will you play it and I said well I want to make it as relevant as I can to the audience so we embarked on you know uh, AIDS events and um, uh, PSAs around the kids help phone and our federal election coverage and media literacy and they all sound like shouldn't you just be playing some Madonna and Guns N' Roses videos? And yes, we played those and we still had fun and we still love to rock. But at the end of the day, I think we inserted a lot of issues and ideas into the conversation with the audience that struck a chord with them. They thought we cared about them and we did. And we wanted to hear their opinion and we included their thoughts I mean, this whole idea of interactivity, now with social media and everything else, I mean, everyone's expected to have a two-way conversation. That was new. You know, Moses' idea of opening the windows and all of those interactive um, specials and stories and opportunities that we presented made the audience believe that Much Music was their channel. And so the loyalty was there, which led to great advertising revenues, which led to subscriber rates, which led to a very buoyant, profitable channel. Beautiful circular relationship mm -hmm. of profitability mm -hmm. in business. Yeah. And do you remember at the time knowing that? Or is this something that you sort of look back on and, 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 and reflect and think about? Yeah. Did you it was, know? It was, no, I didn't know at the time. It was evolution. I learned it and I was aware yeah. of it as I was you there. Were well, yeah, because I was in advertising and marketing meetings every week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I yeah. knew what was going on. Um, you know, which isn't to say we were all holier than thou. We used to do these snow jobs, uh, you know, where we'd go to mountains and we'd put artists on the top of windy snow swept and try and make them sound good. <laughs> And, you know, to have hilarity on the hill and the, the advertisers would say, you know, well, that's all very nice and it's lots of fun. But, you know, everyone's in puffy jackets. It's just not sexy enough. And I was like, okay, we, we should do more hot tub scenes. And then we eventually did a sand job in Florida as well. So you have to balance it out, right? So growth, profitability. What about people? Were you were you in charge of a fair number of people at yeah, the time? Yeah, we were. What and was your leadership, leadership skill like if someone were to say, you know, I worked for Denise and she was? what what? Uh, you know, I hear from a lot of people and I'm so grateful. Um, it would have been about inclusion and and support, really. I mean, I love to work, I love to hire women, um, love to um, support. And, and at Match Music, it wasn't like, you know, and this is how you do it. I mean, we literally were thrown on the air or here's your camera, figure it out. There wasn't, you know, we didn't have the, the luxury, it was luxury of any training. We just sort of learned you know, on the fly. We learned on the fly. But what a learning environment, oh, especially. Again, because of the growth. It was fantastic. And so, and you know, you know, even when you hire on air personalities, it's, it's like, 
do they have spunk? Do they have curiosity? Yeah. Do they have energy? Do they, you know, you can teach somebody all the rest of that stuff, you know, the mechanics of making content and television, but you can't teach, uh, you know, Good the attitude. vibe and the attitude and the energy and, and particularly the curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot going on. You've also in that period of time that much, you got married to Marie McLaughlin, mm-hmm. great Canadian folk mm-hmm. artist. You had a, a son. Yep. You had a lot going on in your life. Did you have? Did you think about balance at the time? Well, you know, as I look back on it, and and there's a chapter in the book called uh, "Work-Life Balance is an Extreme Sport," um, and it is an extreme sport. So, I mean, I was just running as fast as I could, trying to stay in place and and do what I thought was right. Um, it is a juggle, you know, to, with family and with a with a young son. And luckily, my mom and you know Murray'd go on the road a lot, and then it got really hairy. Um, but we all, you know, chipped in and did whatever it, it it really took. So having a support system is really, really, really key. And now, as I look back, I mean, I felt terribly guilty about not being there all the time uh, with Duncan. But you know, women. You know, we do have to run faster and jump higher. We do have to. It's that Ginger Rogers. I mean, I almost called the book backwards and in high heels, except for I never wore high heels. But I looked at that Ginger Rogers, uh, a Ginger Rogers movie just a little while ago, and I thought, she is doing everything Fred Astaire did, backwards and in high heels. But the only thing she didn't do was lead. He always led. So, you know, as women, as we're struggling, you know, in, in, as I said, traditionally male-dominated industries to, you know, begin to to find those opportunities and to sort of hit it out of the park, we do have to work harder. It's still the case. Um, And the numbers are terrible when it comes to CEOs and boardrooms and politics. I mean, we're all in the low single digits. Is it a conversation you've always had back, even back then you were having that conversation out loud about gender equality yeah for sure absolutely particularly when it came to the music videos because you know this was a time when you know we did a lot of too much for much media literacy programming on this these videos were coming in and the women were wearing you know next to nothing and i would say is there a fabric shortage in la is that what's going on (laughs) well you know did those women dance or you know 30 women surrounding one lead singer because they were emancipated or were they being exploited? Did they have a choice in that? And so for me, what I learned was, you know what, ladies, do what you want. Just make sure it's what you want. And I know I'm coming from a very entitled position where I could make those choices. I've quit jobs because I didn't have the freedom um, to be able to do what I thought was was justifiable or balanced or right um, and I know that there are a lot of women around the world that don't have that opportunity and uh, which makes the rights and freedoms we have here in North America all the more worth protecting good for you keep mm-hmm. fighting it mm-hmm. before I move over to Sony music I just want to say if the or ask if 20 year old Denise Donlin was standing in front of us what advice would you give her knowing now what was going to unfold over the next 24 years? It would just be, you know, like what my mom always said to me, stand up straight. (laughs) Because, you know, that it's okay to fail. I think that would be the advice. You know what? It's just okay. Do your best. And if you fail, it's that song, dust yourself off, you know, pick Pick yourself yourself up, start all over again. Good for you. It's It's important. In 2000, Sony Music Canada came knocking. 15 years at, at much and they, they came after you for mm-hmm. president of that of that mm-hmm. group. 
the music industry had been flourishing. It looked like what was going to be an incredible opportunity. And I know when I read the book, the part that really resonated with me was an opportunity to take Canadian talent and, and to develop them. Mm-hmm. Um, Describe what happened, though, once you got into that environment. <laughs> it, was, it was December of 2000. And, yeah, I was really looking forward to Sony Music because, you know, as we said at Much Music, I mean, it made lots of money, but it was part of the overall chum organization. And just because you made the money didn't mean you, you could keep it. So we, we, you know, we'd say that old expression, we were throwing nickels around like manhole covers, you know. And so I was thought, yeah, Sony Music is a big company. I could, I could fly business class. I'd be looking forward to that and you know hanging out with bruce springsteen and and but when i went literally and i i hope it wasn't a cause and effect thing but it literally was the moment i walked through the door the bottom fell out of the business globally and it turns out that 1999 was the highest year on record for profits in the record industry after that i mean we still haven't recovered 2016 was the first year it actually the sales of pre-recorded music globally went up by 3.2 percent after a free fall for 15 years um and it was only up by 3.2 percent which is you know a rounding error in any other business and in your book you had a little word one word the reason that the music industry the bottom fell out was because because of Napster. Yeah. Well, Napster was only one. So the beginning, it was the beginning of illegal file sharing. And, you know, it wasn't the whole cause, but what it did was it revealed a lot of challenges that the music business had already. So when I went there, you know, Napster was very soon, you know, he's a disruptive little Dickens because it was a business that suddenly was competing with free right? How are you still trying to sell a $20 CD when, you know, and kids would talk, you know, what do you mean you 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 bought the new Pearl Jam? I would have burned that for you for two bucks. You're an idiot. So, you know, and the record industry at the time, I mean, I read this stat or the survey that said, you know, we were hated. The number one industry that young people love to hate was the tobacco industry. Uh, no, they were number two. We were number the one. The record industry was number one. Well, because suddenly it was, you know, sticking it to the man and you're making me buy this $20 CD and there's 20 bad songs, on, you know, and I only wanted the one song. And, and you know, I go through it. it it's it's quite complicated. Um, but I do take a few pages and, and, you know, run down the list of mea culpas that the industry, where we put a foot wrong. And also where we were putting feet right as well. Um, The industry had become very, very uh, commercial, very uh, quarterly focused, right? It used to take years to develop an artist, and now the artist was expected to have a hit right out of the box. Um, And if they didn't have a hit, they were dropped, and and the record, uh, you know, would move on. It became very formulaic. It became very style over substance, Um, and so there was a, there was a lot you know in the record industry when when the illegal file sharing uh, started, you know was arrogant about it. Mm-hmm. We you know we thought we could sue our way out of it, um, and no, it, this was a technological disruption on a massive scale. Yeah. And once that genie was out of the bottle, the you know the the fans weren't going back. Sixteen years to recover with mm-hmm. uh, music streaming, online music uh, purchasing. Are we getting closer now to a model that's compensates the musician uh, and is affordable to the buyer? Like, what's the model? Yeah, we're not there yet. We're not there for the artists. I think that, you know, I mean, 
artists thought, and many people thought, that you know this, all these te- new shiny, new technological, new do-it-yourself tools, able to put my song out online and reach the world, right? Which kind of reminds me of that Steve Martin uh, goofy movie where he gets his name in the phone book and like everyone will know my name. Right? Just because you can put a record out doesn't mean people are going to beat a path to your door. And it's turned, you know, you you can get a lot of exposure, but you know, the you can die of exposure. And the notion of the starving artist has never been more true. So once you pull the ability to make money from selling the physical product, the CD, out of the mix, then you give away your music in order to build an audience so that they will come to see you live at the same time as live venues are closing across the country because the real estate is too high. and uh, So there's less and less places to play. And, you know, they're, they're, so they have to sell merchandising, they have to sell CDs off the back of live performances, and it's turned these artists into hustlers, right? They're online constantly, they're tweeting to their fans, they're uh, engaged in social media, they're, they're putting out a lot of content quickly so that the, the maw can be fed. You know, and what does that do to the art at the yeah. end of the day? Like, I don't, I don't want my young, fabulous singer-songwriter to be spending her 10,000 hours, you know, building her fan base on social media. I want her to be honing her craft. Yep. So there's there's copyright challenges, uh, and the government's got to get a little bit more on side on that. Uh, there's, there's value. It's a value gap. There's a value proposition. So, and there's a number that I read that may be outdated now, but it was from the Canadian Independent Recording Industry Association. I can't remember the actual acronym. And they went to the Department of Heritage and they said that in 2006 versus 2016, there used to be 28,000 artists across the country that self-identified as entrepreneurs, as artists. There are now half that number. So where are the next Drakes and the next Diana Krolls and the next Brian Adams going to come from? Good news is there. there's a lot more music being made. It's just that they can't do it full time. And uh, they have to, you know, find a benefactor or get a day job. Uh, so the Sony experience, so you go in, again, I'm going to leverage off mm-hmm. of the fact that this great Camelot out of much music. You come into an industry that is just the bottom has fallen out of. Yikes. And now, and now you, I'm laying people off you and I'm watching my bottom line. How was that for you? That must have just been. It was on many levels. It was a challenge. I mean, and I will say that and come back to it. But, the, you know, the music was, helped enormously. You know, there are many industries that, that go through challenging times and they're selling you know, soap or widgets, like we were selling music and we had a creative environment in which to play and we, we love to support the artists. Uh, so at the end of the day, you know, you could put on that brand new, you know, uh, John Mayer song and sort of buoy yourself up. But it was difficult because on one hand, I was learning the business. And on the other hand, I mean, I had no fee- people would say, well, you know, didn't you have any female mentors, Denise? And I was like, no, I was the only female president of a country in the Sony international world. So I would go to my international meetings with, you know, France and Germany and Latin America and Australia. And I was the only woman who wasn't serving coffee or, or bringing in ashtrays. We smoked a lot in those days. And, you know, asking, there was a couple high-powered women in New York, and but asking them to mentor me would have been like, 
asking them to help me tie up my shoes. Like it wasn't, okay. it was a competitive business. But it's like, did you lean in, Denise? Were you leaning in? I was leaning in so far my feet were off the ground. <laughs> um, and at the same time, the business was falling to pieces. The great part of it, though, was that Canada was a little bit under the radar. I mean, we had fantastic artists and we, you know, we benchmarked in the top five in terms of profit margins for the company. It was a well-run business. I say that, you know, not trying to toot my own horn, but great people at that company. Um, you know, Celine Dion and Leonard Cohen, we had fantastic, you know, legacy artists as well as our new ones we were signing. But we could, we were a little bit under the radar. And as my boss, Rick Davis at Sony International, I said, you know, I want to try some stuff up here. And he says, you know what, Denise, go for it. Just go for it. You know, keeping morale up in a company where, you know, every single record company was laying people off in droves. And so where do you find, you know, the, the morale and the confidence for your teams? And, you know, I used to have president's meetings every every quarter, and I'd show everybody the numbers. And at Sony, we had in the same building, not only the artistic, you know, um, repertoire side, marketing sales, we also had physical. We had, we were manufacturing DVDs and CDs and they knew how the business was because they were touching that product Mm -hmm. every day. So I invited anybody who wanted to come to these reinvention meetings, you know, so you'd be sitting in the meeting with, uh, you know, with executives on one hand and the guy from shipping on the other, just go, well, here's an idea. Let's try this. Well, let's try that idea. Let's throw that against the wall. So we did, you know, we, we launched e-commerce sites for, luckily, Celine trusted us enough to do that for her um, and learned about that side of the business. Um, so you led with engagement, you yeah. have involvement. So Innovation. Take, taking a difficult time. There was one great story. You talked about the music where Leonard Cohen was producing, I think, the first album that he put out in 10 years. Yeah, 10 and, new songs. <laughs> right. And you had to fly, maybe share with us, you had to oh, fly to California yeah. and meet with Leonard. Leonard. So I knew Leonard from Much Music. And uh, and he was one of those ones, you know, that he would come in and I would interview him and having read everything he ever wrote and, you know, listened to everything. And Anyway, so... But he hadn't done. He'd been up on Mount Baldy with his, uh, with his, with Roshi, for years and years, and hadn't put anything out. And Leonard was a big, was a good moneymaker for the company. He he could outsell Michael Jackson in, in places like Norway and Finland. I was flying to L.A. He was going to meet us the next day. This is myself and Ian McKay, our business affairs manager, and we were going to be the first in the world to hear this new record, ten new songs. So after then, 10 years of absence, after like, 10 years of absence, deal. it was a big deal. And, you know, the, the, the record company around the world, they knew they had a record. So everyone was counting on, you know, selling a certain amount of units and making some money and on and on. So I landed in San Monica and I was in a, I was pretty frugal because the industry, as I said, was, was having a rough time. So it wasn't a great hotel, but it was a good hotel by the beach. And I phoned Leonard and, um, he he said, oh, I, I, I can't come over because um, we're going to have to postpone. I'm like, well, I've flown all this way. He said, well, I don't have an engineer because it's a bank holiday. I was like, um, okay. Well, what about Sharon? Can't she push the buttons? Well, no, no, I can't can't locate her either. And I said, Leonard, I, I can't. I have to go to Vegas. I was actually going to see Celine, but you don't mention one artist when you're talking to another artist. Um I said, do you have a do you have a ref copy? So reference copies are, and he said, why well, yes, I've I've got a ref. 
do you have a CD player? And I'm looking around the hotel room and I, and I spot one and there, it's beside, it's like eight inches by 10 inches. It's this tiny little clothes and play. I said, yeah, there's one uh, in the room. He said, well, I'll bring it over then. I, I sort of ordered 10 pounds of cheese, a cheese tray, and I, I brought these two bottles of wine from Canada. They were Canadian wines. I was a little nervous. I was like, sorry, Leonard, these are Canadian wines. Canada, Canadian wines weren't as good as they are now. And he said, no, no matter. I'm a patriot. So we uncorked the wines and we st- ate the cheese and, you know, just gabbed, right? How's Mordecai doing? How's Irving Layton doing? Caught up. And then he said, well, let's hear it. So put the CD player in this little tiny machine. <laughs> and it, it was like the volume was, you couldn't hear anything. I was like trying to turn it up and I'm sitting on the bed and he's on the other side. And finally I said, well, we have to get closer. And so I tried to move the CD player, but it was nailed to the side table. And he said, well, maybe if we, we sit on the floor, I said, okay. So we, we both kind of sat on the floor and, and pushed tried to push the bed across the room with our feet and hoping that wasn't nailed to the wall. And anyway, got close enough where we could actually hear the record. And it was a gorgeous uh, record. A it was fantastic. And then well, when you thing, said you knew Leonard Cohen, because you'd interviewed him and knew him a bit, mm-hmm. do, do you really, do you know Leonard Cohen? Like well, when I nobody say, knows like, Leonard. Yeah, that's why I asked the question. But I had big, big reverence for him. I, I absolutely oh, enjoyed his wit and his sense of humor and, and, you know, he was just such a gorgeous writer. Um, yeah, no, it was it was a really wonderful journey with Leonard. I mean, later on, I actually had to fight with him over a record, which is also in the book. Um, and the reason I included that story was because he sent me such a beautiful... We literally had a fight. He was yelling at me so hard. I was holding the, the, the phone, you know, five feet from my ear. Um, and then the next day he sent me an, a, an apology email that is so beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a, almost a haiku. So I put the story in and, and I worried about it and I cut and pasted it and sent it to Leonard. And this was about a month before he died. And I said, Leonard, I want to put the story in the book. And then sort of, you know, press send on my computer and then had a large glass of wine. <laughs> Nervous. And then about three hours later, bloop, Leonard oh. pops up on the email. And he says, Denise, he said, he said, I'd forgotten that incident. Meanwhile, I carried it around like, like a tortoise shell uh, for years. And he said, uh, yes, your rendition made me laugh. Please publish it with my blessings. Love, Leo. This is historical yeah. Canadian historical stuff. Yeah, he's so lovely. Oh, good for I you. miss him. Before we leave the music scene for a moment, I just have to ask you if you're on a deserted island. Mm. And you can't pick Murray, okay? <laughs> Three favorite Canadian Murray's albums. Murray's latest record's pretty good. Is it? Well, okay. You. We'll put yeah. him in as the fourth. <laughs> three favorite, if you have three favorite Canadian albums, you could take Canadian with you. Canadian albums. Well, I would take... Um, I would take Joni Mitchell Blue mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, that those were the years I was so young. It was such a seminal record. I would take the best of Leonard Cohen. I would take I would take Diamond Mine, Blue Rodeo. Oh, nice. I would take, is, I, is there a best of Diana Krall collection I can take? <laughs> could be. Well, you've already had your three, but we'll oh, slip sorry. her in as the fourth. Okay. How about international, if I, if I took you outside of the Canadian? Well, then I would go for John Mayer, Born and Raised, because it's just one of those records Ooh. that I put on my you know CD player when I'm driving to the cottage and just sing my head off with my son. He loves it, too. Um, I would take Thelonious Monk, Live oh, in San Francisco. So like Good jazz. I would take Elton John, Mad Men Across the Water, oh, one of those old ones. Okay, 
44-year-old Denise is standing in front of us, having now just left Sony. Is there mm-hmm. any advice you would have given her different than you would have given to the to the 20-year-old, thinking about what you were going to do at 44, 45? Well, it's funny because I think the advice would still be the same. It would still be stand up straight. I mean, I had to talk to myself to be statesman-like when the, when the business was, I, I would say, you know, could this business be run better by a male veteran leader? And I'd say, you know what? No, let's just walk in and provide you know, as much vision and leadership and confidence as you can possibly find. Um, but yeah, I hadn't found my confidence yet, really. When did you find it? Because the CBC Radio English head of came up next. Was mm-hmm. that the place? I loved uh, CBC Radio, loved working there. It was, again, another walk-in with the promise of expansion and find that we were facing $171 million shortfall. And so, again, learning that business, uh, radio was non-commercial, so I had to fight like hell to ensure that radio wasn't cut unduly. In fact, the book opens with me being protested in Sydney, Nova Scotia, because they think I'm coming there to close the station. And, in fact, you know, the reason I wasn't tarred and feathered on that hill was because I believe in CBC so strongly, and those people knew that. I was able to, to convince them of that and that I would do everything in my power to stand up for, you know, solid journalism and local uh, stations and arts and culture. And, and you know, CBC is, is the glue now. It is. It, uh, and, you know, people have always called it the glue, Canadian glue. But I love those small stations. I love the, the tenacity of our journalists. And, you know, especially now when we're looking at, you know, so-called alternative media and fake news. And, you know, there's never been a time when we need entrepreneurial investigative journalism more than right now. And to have a media and a Canadian institution that is acting in the public interest, not in private interest of, you know, Fox News or the people that own CNN or whoever, but to act in the public interest is crucially important to who we are as Canadians, I believe. You had a great quote. It was you referred yourself as a pom-pom waving Canadian cultural nationalist. (laughs) (laughs) I've got my pom-poms with them. No, they're The CBC is the perfect place (laughs) for that to have happened. What was that experience? Because it's interesting to listen to you. Mm -hmm. The, The strength and the tone of your voice around the CBC is completely different than it was around much music, Camel, huh. Camelot versus now this go get them leadership. Like you just mm. have developed an incredible skill set. Well, I, on one hand, it comes from experience, right? Yeah. You, you learn how to read a P&L and to understand the business and where the money's coming from. And you learn how to navigate complex organizations. Um, I had to learn at the CBC that, you know, that people just wouldn't do what I wanted just because I wanted them to, right? That would work that I way? I know. It was like, let's Damn. take the hill. Come on, everybody. Because CBC was a large organization and because there were so many stakeholders, you know, from the president to the board to the audience and all of the, you know, the unions and everybody in between, that it was a very process-oriented place. So... And Richard Sturzberg and I, you know, we didn't agree on everything by a long shot. 
Um, but he loved to surround himself um, with passionate people, and he loved a fact-based argument. So I learned, even though I was sort of passionate emotionally, that in order to state my case uh, for small stations, uh, you know, for, for current affairs programming, etc., I had to build a fact-based argument and present the empirical evidence. And the great thing about him is I could go in and slam the door and we could go. And sometimes I would win. But the research was in your DNA at that stage, well, right? You had done research from much music through, like, so mm-hmm. this was... So I knew how to do it. I your... knew how to build a business case yeah. now. Um, so I wasn't just operating on on instinct anymore. I was operating on, uh, you know, experienced uh, business navigational yep. skills. So Denise, helpful balance. <laughs> There yeah. was a part of the book where I know, I think it was at Sony, where you'd had some um, flare-up with some anxiety. Mm-hmm. How do you cope with that, or what skill sets did you learn to cope with that and create balance? <laughs> well, I think that you have to learn to forgive yourself, that you're not always going to make the right decisions all the time, and that you're never going to have balance. You just won't. It's like it's like triage, right? You, it's like, we're going to deal with that one over there because it's bleeding most heavily, and we're going to put that one aside because we can deal with that later. So it's more of a juggle, um, and you're not going to... I think balance can be achieved over time, but you have to be conscious about it. And the coping mechanism was really like wear a mouth guard. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Wear a mouth guard. The dental work I've had to have because I just... just, I took my stress in my my teeth. Um, And yeah, wear a mouth guard. Wow. Fascinating advice. (laughs) What now, Denise? Right. Where are you at? Well, I don't know. That, that That's a good question, and, and I'm sort of grappling with it a bit because the book's been out for, you know, about five, four, five, five, maybe six months now. So I promised that, you know, when the book was released, I would give it some time to talk about it for the publisher. Um, and then I just go back from India, and I'm like, okay, now what are we going to do next? What's the third act going to be? And, you know, I say in the book, if I, if, because I tend to, the reason headhunters call me now, typically, is because it's an organization that needs what they call transformational efficiencies, right? It's like, how did I become the hatchet woman? I don't want to be an expert. I don't want to be an expert in that. I don't want to be no, no. And, and because I've always kind of had a foot in new canoes, I'm, I'm very sort of, I, I, I thrive in creative environments. Then yet I also have a really good business sense too, I think. Yeah. So the next chapter's got to be something that actually feeds my soul as well. It has to be something that makes a contribution. Um, so based on that, two words that, I, that are mm. swimming around in my mind, uh, growth opportunity, maybe you've touched on that, mm. uh, and fun. Yeah, it's got to be fun. I mean, I'll make it fun anyway, yeah. <laughs> what it is. And, you know, it was, it was funny because when I was at Sony and, and sort of the, the hell was going to a handbasket there, um, you know, people would say, well, Denise, you can't joke around with your staff. You're the, you're the president. And I'm like, you know what? Actually, when we're in times of great turmoil, it's good to be able to empathize with your staff and to, to you know, find uh, your team and your, your community through humor. Humor's always worked for me. Yes, you have to be statesmanlike, but you have to still be a person at the end of the day. Yeah, I remember reading that. And there was mm-hmm. another part, maybe it was in the same paragraph, where you said both humor, but you also liked people to like you. And I wanted people to respect 
respect people. Part of it as part of the leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you go into some businesses where people are arrogant. They don't return their phone calls. They, they, you know, believe in their own hierarchical status and they treat the people who work for them abominably. And I have learned all these years that you don't get the best out of people. You know, people say, well, you have to pay them. Well, yeah, you have to pay what people are worth. But you get the best out of people because you know how to value them, because you know how to support them. Um, And then they'll walk through fire for you if they feel valued. That's the best way to build a company. So right now you're at that cusp where you're not quite sure. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's big or little is is the challenge. Um, I still got a lot of energy. Well, that's um, the thing. That's what's yeah. I, that's why it's and why I was so excited to be able to sit down with you as well because <laughs> I know there's just way too much in the future for you. Well, I hope so. Uh, I mean, but it has it has absolutely. to make a contribution. It has to be fun. It has yeah. to feed my soul, and hopefully, you know, you use your powers for good. We have so many people of all age categories that are listening. What advice do you give a Canadian? always striving to be their best oh you just have to go for it you just you know do work as hard as you possibly can do your homework go for it believe in yourself which may be the hardest thing to do and if you fail pick yourself up i mean i have such huge fondness and regard for canada i mean we can be a leader in the world on, on so many levels, from the environment to our multicultural uh, aspirations. It's our 150th birthday, mm-hmm. right, to try and figure out who we're going to be in the next 50 years. Supporting people, surrounding yourself with the best there is really means gender equality and and diversity because you can't have great ideas and great inspiration surrounding yourself with only people who looked and sound just like yeah. you um you know canada you were in we're sitting in what is arguably the most multicultural city in the world success as a, a thriving embracing i never use that word tolerant i think it's it, just a it's a short-sighted passive aggressive it's not embracing enough word uh, but a society that that celebrates our differences it won't happen because we wish it we have to work at it Mm -hmm. Um, and that's going to take a lot of work on on so many levels so but we can do it we can be the best in the world because i think we already are any of those headhunters had just haven't presented that that job that you've just described (laughs) taking a leadership position Internationally, it would be perfect for me. Mm, that would be fun. It would be. I do like working globally. Okay. <laughs> as I mentioned off the top, the book is Fearless as Possible Under the Circumstances in Brackets. We just scratched the surface here. It's a story of living with positivity. It's doing the right thing. And I think it's pushing for things like gender equality and so much more. So everybody listening, get the book. And thanks, Denise, for sharing your time, your honesty, and your wonderful stories with Candy Crush. <laughs> it was my pleasure. Thanks, David. It was Thank a you. delight. Yeah, good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.